Welcome to the OIS Podcast, where you get candid conversations with the leaders and drivers of ophthalmic innovation. And now, here's our host, Tom Salemi. Hey, everyone. This is the OIS Podcast. Welcome back. I'm your host, Tom Salemi. Our guest today is Sue Washer. She is the president and CEO of an OIS stalwart, AGTC, one of the earlier gene therapy companies. And I think the only one that really focuses almost exclusively on ophthalmology. In this conversation with Gene, we talk a bit about AGT's origins, but also its approach to uh, developing new treatments for eye disease. It's got a unique partnership program. It works with Biogen and uh, has a, a really cool deal with a, a smaller startup that uh, Sue will get into in this conversation. It's also looking to uh, turn its, uh, its technology into a platform going into other specialties, and she'll talk about that as well. Finally, she's uh, recently been appointed to the board at Bio, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll hear about her plans for that very important post. So it was a pleasure to talk to Sue. Very happy to have her on the podcast before we get into this conversation, I did want to remind you that OIS at ASCRS is happening on April 12th in Washington. We have three OISs coming up this year. You can still sign up for all three and save yourself money through our triple play package or sign up for two and save some money through our double play package. So go to OIS.net, check out the agenda for OIS at ASCRS and also the uh, huge savings you can get with our package deals. Now we'll get into this conversation with Sue Washer of AGTC. Well, Sue Washer, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, it's great to finally have you here. I've, I've heard your presentations at OIS. I know you've been a frequent contributor to OIS and uh, received an award a few years ago. So uh, your story is probably familiar to to many, but I, I one thing I wanted to find out more about really was uh, one of many things was the origins of AGTC. You were founded in the in the late nineties, is that right? How did the how did the company come together at that time? So you're right. The company was originally founded in 1999, and it was founded by five um, academic scientists, uh, some of whom have MDs, some of whom have PhDs, or both. Um, and it was Dr. William Hausworth, Dr. Jude Samalski, Dr. Barry Byrne, Terry Flott, and Nick Muzitska, all of whom are luminaries in the fields of virology and gene therapy specifically. And they had kind of watched what they thought was a very promising technology kind of flounder in the translation from academics into the commercial space. Mm -hmm. And so they decided to get, get together and form their own company. Um, and I know that 1999 sounds a long time ago, but the, the first few years of the company, it really was a research-based company surviving on SBIR grants, kind of the standard early academic spin-out. But that focus on the technology is really what has continued to drive the company as we move forward, really understanding our, our technology, understanding how to design vectors, understanding how to deliver vectors. So I think that served us well to have that very rigorous academic focus early on. It doesn't sound like that long ago until you actually think about it, but <laughs> now that you mentioned <laughs> yeah, it'll be coming up on 20 years. Uh, so 
was the plan initially to uh, to go into ophthalmology? Was that the, the first focus or did that develop over time? No, the focus on ophthalmology did develop over time. The, the initial focus, as I said, was really based on understanding exactly how this virus behaved. Mm-hmm. What were the best ways to design it? What were the best ways to manufacture it? How could you target it to specific tissues? Uh, we did some early proof of concept work um, in LCA, an ophthalmology indication, but also in an, uh, a lung indication called alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. And through those two experiences, we're really able to target where we, we thought the focus should be. Mm-hmm. And that's where the company then, um, in, the, in the mid-2000s, mid to late-2000s, decided to focus on ophthalmology, and that was driven by one of our founders, Dr. William Houseworth, who is one of the preeminent scientific leaders in ophthalmology gene therapy. It's really quite challenging to find a a peer-reviewed published paper that doesn't have his name on it in that space. And so we had a lot of information to pull from. We had a very good advisor, um, and we decided to select a suite of programs within the orphan ophthalmology space. So let's get into the, those programs a bit. What are your, uh, what are your lead programs in, in the ophthalmology space? So we have five programs ongoing and one that we'll be entering, uh, be filing an IND on this year. Uh, the four programs that are ongoing are a program for X-linked retinoschisis, which has a patient population of about 35,000 patients. They have very poor vision and a significant risk of retinal detachments because they're missing a structural protein. Mm -hmm. The next two programs are different forms of a disease called achromatopsia. Uh, These patients have cone photoreceptors, but they don't function because they're missing a channel protein that allows a photon to get into the photoreceptor and trip the phototransduction cascade. So these patients are all legally blind. They're very light sensitive, and they only see in black and white and shades of gray. And there's about 28,000 of those patients in the U.S. and Europe, so slightly smaller patient population than XLRS, but both pretty significant patient populations. And a commonality between these two diseases is that they're both relatively stable over time. So we thought they were good initial targets because if the treatment succeeded, we could have a chance on really having a positive effect on a larger percentage of the patient population since it wasn't a, as much of a degenerative disease. Mm-hmm. And, and then the last uh, program that's already in the clinic is a treat, potential treatment for X-linked retinitis pigmentosa. And most people, even lay people, have heard of retinitis pigmentosa, but it's, it's caused by a wide variety of genetic defects, and we're, we're focusing in on one. Um, and that product now, we're actively uh, screening patients uh, to begin the phase one clinical trial. And this is the first of the indications we're working on that does degenerate over time. And so in this disease, we're going to be looking for stabilization of visual function over time rather than improvement in visual focus over time. And it is a traditional RP in the sense that people lose their night vision and their peripheral vision first, and then they gradually lose visual fields, and, and, and eventually even their central vision disappears in their 40s and 50s. 
And your your strategy involves uh, partnerships with with uh, with outside companies. I know you work with Biogen and a few of those programs. Uh, what what determines when you're when you're working with another company uh, or when you're going at it alone? So this kind of, there's a kind of two part answer there. We we have a, a wide variety of different kinds of collaboration. So w- one of those co- kinds of collaborations goes back to our focus as we're, we're really technically focused. And so our drive is to design and construct the best vector for each indication uh, to have the best chance of success, success in the clinic. And if that means that we uh, want to work with some other company that has the best technology, we're agnostic to that. We don't have to build every single piece of the things internally ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so that speaks to collaborations we have with 4D Molecular Therapeutics, uh, with Synpromix, uh, with SAFC, with the University of Florida. Um, and all of those partnerships are based on you know, a, a capsid or a promoter or a manufacturing method or a delivery method that we feel will be additive and will really differentiate the specific product we're making for the specific patient population. Because we really believe gene therapy is not a one-size-fits-all, and you really need to custom design these vectors for each patient population. And then, you know, one, a very interesting um, uh, collaboration we have is with a company called Biotic, Bionic Site out of New York, and that's our our potential project uh, in optogenetics. So I think there's been a lot of talk about optogenetics. There's several players in the space. And basically, this is to assist patients that no longer have functioning photoreceptors. And it's our photoreceptors that turn light waves into electrical signals that our brain can recognize as vision. And once you don't have photoreceptors, it becomes very very challenging to think about doing any kind of treatment, even gene therapy, to restore that function. And so what optogenetics does is transduce other types of cells in the eye with light-sensitive proteins so that we can turn other live functioning cells and have them be able to change light waves into electrical signals. And what Bionic Sight brought to the table is that it's, it's, it's one thing just to have light dark and be able to trigger that uh, for the human brain, but it's another thing to get that signaling correct so that your brain can really understand images. And so they have brought a very interesting wearable device uh, that they've been working on for a number of years, and we really believe that their unique um, mathematical algorithm and wear- wearable device combined uh, with the uh, proprietary light-sensitive protein and the gene therapy play we're putting on the table will really make optogenetics be something that is much more uh, functional for patients. Well, that's amazing. Did, did Bionic Sight come to you, or did you identify this as an area that you wanted to have a program? Well, we identified optogenetics as a very interesting area, but when we looked at what was currently available, what we were concerned about is what would be the full function the patients would have. Maybe they'd be able to see light and dark. Um, Maybe they'd be able to see outlines of very large objects, 
but they really wouldn't get that kind of functionality where they could be more independent, where they could recognize a face, where they could, you know, really have a fuller quality of life. And so we kind of struggled with that. And then actually one of our scientific uh, founders, Dr. Hausworth again, as well as our, our current chief medical officer, Matt Feinsod, introduced us to the founder of Bionic Sites. And so that's how the initial connection was made. And, and the more we talk to, uh, with each other, you know, we really had the biologic gene delivery, gene therapy vector information. She really had the device, the mathematical algorithm, the signaling um, information, and we thought it was just very logical to put the two things together um, and be able to move forward in partnership. And, and that's a partnership that includes a, an investment that you made into Bionic Site. Is that right? Is that, is that typical? For your partnerships, that is not, that is not that not typical. Um, but uh, Bionic Site was a very small virtual organization, and we really wanted to make sure that our partner had the scope and breadth to be able to move forward and develop that device while we were developing uh, the uh, vector. Mm-hmm. And is there any compatibility at all with your technology and some of the other? Um retinal assisting assistance devices out there that uh, that we're seeing or is it unique to bionic site it's unique to bionic site i mean many of the devices that you see out there in the retinitis pigmentosa space really what they're doing is um, amplifying the light not working at proper signaling of the light back to the retina so it really is a very unique approach Now let's take a quick break from this conversation with Sue Washer to uh, revisit the package deals, the bundle and save packages that I mentioned at the top of the show. I should have told you then that the uh, deadline for signing up for the triple plays and the double plays that include OIS and ASCRS is March 12th. So it's it's fast upon us. If you're looking to uh, sign up for OIS at ASCRS and one or two other OIS programs, should go to OIS.net. Now let's get back into this conversation. I wonder, is a, is a focus on ophthalmology, is it ever a hindrance? I mean, there are other larger markets out there where maybe your technology could, could, could apply. Uh, is that something that, you're, that you see as a strength, focusing largely on this one area? Or, or do you see opportunities for expanding into other diseases as well? Well, we do see it as a strength. Uh, We think that in the uh, greater ophthalmology space, really gene therapy has been at the forefront of innovation within ophthalmology. And so we think that that's uh, definitely a strength moving forward and that there's different technologies that you can think about pairing with gene therapy to drive other programs forward. You know, gene editing tools still need to be delivered, and gene therapy can help with that. Uh, monoclonal antibodies need to be delivered, and there's, there's lots of evidence now that gene therapy vectors can express antibodies. So I think that it's, it's definitely a strength, but we also understand that our technology is a platform. And so we have announced uh, uh, that Um, several months ago now, that we do have a research effort in otology. So this is hearing loss. So still staying in the sensory area, 
still staying in, uh, you know, a contained organ space. And the similarities between ophthalmology and otology are really quite striking. Uh, In ophthalmology, you have photoreceptors. In otology, you have hair cells. And photoreceptors turn light waves into electrical signals. Hair cells turn sound waves into electrical signals. And the similarities go on throughout this, you know, the structures look very different, obviously, but the functions of the different cell types are are really very similar to each other. And so we thought we could apply what we'd learned in ophthalmology about, you know, disease-specific targeting and cell-specific targeting that we could apply that in the otology space. So we do have a research effort there, and and we're currently exploring potentially being able to partner with with companies that have greater clinical expertise in that area and match it to our technical expertise. So we're we're focusing on ophthalmology. I don't want anybody to think suddenly we're we're off focus, um, but we found this very interesting space where we really thought that our ophthalmology focus could be helpful from a technical standpoint. That that's interesting. I don't know is there any I I'm thinking of any hearing assistance uh treatments that would be delivered it in any sort of pharmaceutical way or any kind of gene therapy way. I mean, I, I just, all I think I can think of are just more devices. Yeah, there hasn't been any advancement in the otology space since the advent of hearing aids and cochlear implants. So it's definitely been an area of medicine that hasn't yet benefited from all the advancements and innovation. So we think that's another exciting part about the otology space. That's really cool. So let's talk a bit about the the developments we're seeing in in gene therapy, specifically in in ophthalmology. Of course, Spark uh, had its uh, approval of Luxterna last year, made a a number of headlines, uh, good or bad, about the the pricing of that that drug. And uh, I wonder how that sort of impacts your work at uh, AGTC, if it's something that you look at as as a guidepost, if it's just something that's happening that isn't directly related to you. What's your, uh, what's your take of, uh, of Spark's progress and Lixterna's introduction to the market? Well, certain, certainly we have a great deal of respect for the work that Spark has done and certainly the work that they did to show that you could get an orphan ophthalmology gene therapy product through uh, clinical development, ADCOM review, BLA review, and approval has been outstanding for the space. And I think that in many people's minds, whether it's uh, payers, providers, patients, and investors, it's been like a box has been appropriately and very positively checked that you can, with the right development plan, get gene therapy products approved in ophthalmology, and not only just approved, but approved with a novel endpoint. I think they did a very good job of developing a novel endpoint and getting good buy-in from all of the KOLs and getting good buy-in from the regulatory agencies. So really, really a, a great job done. And I think they're continuing that thoughtful approach as they they go into commercialization. Um, You know, I know Jeff has been quoted many times that he feels like the pricing and reimbursement and interactions will have to be unique to different geographic areas and different uh, circumstances. And I think that's how they're moving forward is these are very unique products. And so you have to be willing to have 
creative and interactive and collaborative discussions to come up with unique solutions because what's most important, and I think all of us in the regenerative medicine space agree with this, what's most important is that patients get access. Uh, because that's the purpose of what we're doing in, in an innovative healthcare system is to try and develop these products so that patients can have better lives. I know Spark's leadership was credited for engaging payers early on and, and keeping them abreast of, of Luxterna's progress and potential. Is that something that's part of your day-to-day -day work? Or are you working? I know you're, you've got your, your products aren't close to commercialization yet, at, at least at this point. But are you talking to payers? Are you engaging with that community? Are they engaging with you? Is it something that uh, that you're dealing with? So I'll give you a, kind of a two-part answer to that. As, an, as a company, until we have completed Phase 1, 2 data, it's a little bit premature to be speaking directly to payers. When we have that first set of data, then I, then I do believe that the path forward is to keep payers and others very up-to-date about the, our thoughts and the data and what it's showing and how the patients feel about the product. But really, the first step is to collect that phase one, two trial data and, and be able to disseminate it and interpret it. So that's, that, that's kind of one part of the answer. But the other part of the answer is that, you know, this engagement um, and education, which I think Spark did do a very good job of, is one of the reasons that I joined the board of, of the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine as well as the, recently the board of Bio is because I do think as an industry we need to do the best job possible um, educating all the many stakeholders as to the challenges and promises of these products, and, and one of those stakeholders are the, the payers. And I'm curious as to how, and I, and I do want to get into your, your role at, at Bio in a moment, but did Sparks News, um, has that influenced the way that, that public investors are looking at you? You're a publicly traded company. You're, you're obviously, um, that, that can be a, a roller coaster ride at, at times. I'm curious whether that success had, had, has, any impact, has had any impact on, on uh, AGTC at any point. I, I can't say that it's had a direct impact on AGTC, but I think, as I mentioned earlier, the fact that a product did successfully make it through the regulatory process and out into the marketplace and is being commercialized has had a positive impact overall. And I did want to, again, hit upon the, your uh, new, new role at Bio. You're on the, the board of directors. Is this something that you've, uh, you've sought for a long time, or as you said, is this something that you've sort of came to realize it was important for companies like yours to get out there in the forefront? Well, I think I've always uh, shown an interest in being involved in the industry more generally. I did serve on the board of BioFlorida as well as Southeast Bio, which are kind of regional organizations or kind of sister organizations to Big Bio, as we call it. And so, you know, my desire to uh, work with others in the space and prepare uh, stakeholders for these new innovative technologies has always been there. And, and an opening became available, and the nominating committee reached out to me, and so I was very happy to, to accept that call and accept the nomination to join BIO. As I said, I think uh, many times we need to continue and, and reinforce 
very clear educational materials for all the stakeholders. Uh, there are many people I run into on a daily basis that really don't understand the length of time and the amount of money it takes to develop a product. They really are looking at pricing and reimbursement in their day-to-day lives just on, well, what does it cost to manufacture that product? And don't really have an understanding of all of the work that goes in throughout the process to have a safe and effective, innovative biologic available for patients. And so I think we're always obligated to provide that context and that information. And so I see the role of ARM and bio really to be clear and concise communicators. Uh, and then also working with our, our legislators and our regional, local, and, and federal governments uh, to develop sound policies. And I think we always have to be there and be willing to provide information, to provide context, and to collaborate with them in the best interests of our patients. Now, how do you think ophthalmology is, is viewed or how is ophthalmology viewed at that level, uh, bio and such? Is it is it seen as a as a major piece of the of the puzzle? Is it seen more as a as a, a niche market? So I, it's hard for me to say at bio. Um, I, I've attended one board meeting, my very first one, where I was elected. So I, it's going to take me a while to to understand the the focus and and to get to know the staff and the, my fellow board members there. But I do know at ARM you know, uh, gene therapy specifically and ophthalmology gene therapy because so many of the products that are showing promise and being moved forward in gene therapy are in ophthalmology, it is considered a very important segment. Um, and being able to be supportive of each other and learn from each other is also considered very important. Well, it's it's great to have your voice up there at that level for, uh, for gene therapy and for ophthalmology, and it's uh, been great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you, Tom. I've enjoyed it quite a lot. And that is it. That's a wrap. Sue Washer of AGTC, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a pleasure to finally have you on the show. And uh, thank you for being an important part of OIS. OIS podcast listeners, I always appreciate your participation in this program. Please do uh, give us a ranking on iTunes to help other folks find it. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done that already. Tell your friends to subscribe if they haven't done already. And also, uh, just shoot me an email. Let me know how we're doing, who we should talk to. Tom at healthogy.com. That's the word health, followed by the letters E-G-Y.com. Healthogy is the producer of the OIS podcast and the OIS events. That's a wrap, folks. Don't forget, April 12th, OIS at ASCRS. Register now at OIS.net, and we'll see you in Washington, D.C.